Park. It's the 87th Precinct Podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mysteries, the genre-defining series of police procedural novels which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series and today's podcast is all about book number 23, Shotgun. To review the book, I'm joined by two of the deadliest marksmen ever. Mr. Stephen Double-Barreled Hammond Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Bang Bang Lloyd Brown. Why, hello there. My name is Paul Abbott, and I've never handled a gun in my life, except for the prop one I used on stage once, which didn't go off, and I ended up just throwing it at the person instead. (laughs) And that's a true story about my life as an amateur actor. As usual, we'd like to say thank you to everyone who's contributed, commented, and generally got involved on social media. If you search for Hark 87 Podcast, you'll find us everywhere. Everywhere. If you feel like doing one little thing for us, then popping onto Apple Podcasts and giving us a review and rating would be super helpful. If you feel like helping us out financially, then you can visit our coffee link, ko-fi.com slash hark87podcast, and you could uh, drop us a dollar or two. That's all out of the way now. No more of that uh, pleading. So we'll turn back to the year that this book came out, which was 1969, 50 years ago. We'll do our usual thing of getting stuck into a little bit of 1969. Guess the carry-on film. Well, guess the carry-on film is obviously (laughs) going to come on. Is it? Oh, it always does, doesn't it? I never do any revision for that. (laughs) No. Well, it would ruin it if you did. Well, save a lot of faffing around though. Well, you you mull on it while we talk about music from 1969. I think we're right. What Something you suggested a little while ago, Stephen. Albums. Is albums. So when we hit the 70s with the next book, we'll start looking at top albums rather than top singles. Great. Okay. Just to perhaps reflect the changing face of uh, yeah. the music industry. And then when we get to the later ones, we'll be able to do top MP3s. Well... Were we? Whatever that means. Well, <laughs> yeah. Streaming charts from 2005, perhaps Ooh, a scant. I wonder if they existed. Well, they who's, who's downloaded the most from that thing that used to exist that you could download? Napster. Napster was another LimeWire. LimeWire, that's the one, yeah. I, I remember taking things. about half an hour to download a Dire Straits song. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything else. Also. Anyway, what are we talking about? <laughs> what are we talking about 1969? I was talking about the future. The future. Well, the past. <laughs> the future, future from, from 1969. Yeah, yeah. Which is about the first... No, I'm not even going to go into that. I was going to go into the start of digital music, which actually goes back a lot further than you'd think. But I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> This is not a lecture on that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, music then. UK, so, US, what do you um, reckon? The, I've just been thinking, and the only single I can think of that came out in 1969 is Love Grows Where, Where My Rosemary Goes by Edison Lighthouse. I bet it wasn't in the charts now, was it? It might have been in the charts. <laughs> it wasn't in the top five. But, well, I know well, this I know this isn't going to help, but well, this is the top five as of uh, the 23rd of January, February, March, wouldn't or May wouldn't 1969. The, uh, okay. the Credence been all over the charts in 1969. In the Maybe possibly in the UK. Too. Yeah, well, that's, I would say that's my we're getting guess. to a more hard rocking sort of thing going on across some of the stuff, but uh, not particularly in the top five of these of um, either the UK or the US. In Sugar Sugar point. by the Archies, and certainly not in the top fives here. <sighs> there is there's a common number one in the UK and the US at this point. Okay. What, very well known. Well, very well known to me, anyway. Uh, Beatles, I would assume. Manfred Mann. 
Not Manfred Mann, no, but it is the Beatles. Yeah. Well, it's not just the Beatles. Ah, it's... Beatles and Billy Preston? Yeah, it's Get Back. Oh, right, yeah, of course. So their only single that was credited to someone other than just the Beatles, the Beatles with Belly, Belly Preston. <laughs> Belly Preston, the amusing fat keyboardist. <laughs> Billy Preston, even. So that was number one across the way, and... I think this number two in the UK I thought was quite shocking for 1969. Not sh- well, that shocking's perhaps not the word. And I'm going to tell you because you won't get it. Some crooner. Well, it was My Sentimental Friend by Herman's Hermits. Oh, yeah. So that must be pretty late on in the first flush of Herman's Hermits sort of mm. career. Mm. Yeah, definitely sort of... I'm only heading in an almost croonery kind of direction by that point, aren't they? Definitely. Yeah. It's not, no more No Milk Today. I'm not sure uh, I know that one. Though. I don't know either. It's very drippy. Is it? Yeah. It's no, no milk today. Exactly. The funny thing with the US top five at this point in 1969 is it's still, still got quite a lot of the hippie hang-ups in there. Hmm. So there's, if you could name two or three famous hippie sort of anthems from sixty from the late 60s, you'd probably have a good stab at something that was in the top five. Um, let's go. Papas. Let's go to San Francisco by the Flower Pot Men. No. California Dreaming. No, that was earlier, isn't it? That's 60s. So, um, uh, San Francisco be sure to wear some flowers in your hair um, think more of the commercialisation of hippiness onto the stage perhaps oh um, uh, Age of Aquarius yeah oh, hey. well. <laughs> well things well, things like Aquarius uh, Love Can Make You Happy by a band called Mercy at number three marvellous Hair by the Cowsills I presume that's pronounced Cowsills Cowsills I don't know and Oh Happy Day by the Edwin Hawke singers wow. at number five Edwin My Hawk. goodness, it's very happy clappy. But isn't number it? eleven in um, the US charts was the theme from Hawaii Five O, tremendous by the Ventures, which was written by Morton Stevens, who wrote the theme to the eighty seventh precinct TV series. <sighs> I found something. I found Excellent. a link. And in the UK, so it's Get Back was at number one. This My Sentimental Friend by Herman's Hermans at number two. Herman's Hermans. Herman. I don't even know what I said then. <laughs> Number three was Man of the World by Fleetwood Mac. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Mm. Followed by Dizzy got... by Tommy Rowe. And then Behind a Painted Smile by the Isley Behind Brothers. Behind a Painted Smile. Nice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I should also say about Man of the World, I've got the seven inch of that, and it's notable particularly for its B-side, which is uh, Somebody's Gonna Get Their Head Kicked In Tonight by Earl Vince and the Valiants. Oh, my goodness me. Which is Fleetwood Mac, obviously, with Jeremy Spencer doing an Elvis impersonation. <laughs> Very good. Excellent. That's uh, yeah, a fairly strident uh, theme for a song. Yep, it covered by many a punk band. I would have thought so. Yeah, <laughs> there is one thing I did want to mention in the in within the top twenty in the UK is a song that we I think we all love. It was in at number eighteen. It was written by Jimmy Webb. Oh, um, oh go for it. Whoa. What were you going to say? What was your initial instinct? <laughs> it's one or two. Yeah. Uh... Would it be uh, Wichita Lineman? No! Galveston. Galveston. Oh, I thought that was slightly after that. Galveston by Glen Campbell was oh, right. uh, number 18 in the UK charts at this point. Anyway, there's me- that's all music taken care of in 1969. Hmm. I'll go through some of the film and TV things before we get to the carry-on films. Hmm. The top film in America, in, in the, the highest grossing film in America in 1969, was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Tremendous. Mm. Saw it in Glasgow um, a couple of weeks ago. 
Did you um, just time slip back to 1969? There was a 1969 we theme actually uh, on the, the free uh, movies every day. So oh wow, so that and, and Easy Rider, um, which was the number oh, three grossing yeah, film. In <laughs> did you go and see any other films from 1969? Um, so I even get a full house of the top three. I didn't get to see any of the other ones that were on, but uh, there was also um, the day before we got there, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Um, right. Sweet Charity wouldn't be in the top ones because I think it was a bit of a flop, but that was the day after we went, we left. Yeah. I've forgotten what else now, to be honest. Midnight Cowboy? That was on, definitely. True Grit as well. I forget what yeah. else. True <laughs> Grit was in there, definitely. Yeah, Midnight Cowboy was the won the best picture mm. as well that year. Uh, another film that was out that year was a film called Last Summer, which was based on a book by Evan Hunter. That come out the year before, I think. I've never seen that. It's apparently, it's a coming of age movie. Catherine Burns, who was in that, got a nomination for best supporting actress. Mm-hmm. And at number nine was the film Goodbye Columbus, Ooh. which is that Philip Roth. Philip Roth, yeah, is sort of. I think it was his debut novel actually. It's, I've never seen the. the which film is, of it. course, it's Jack Klugman is in Goodbye Columbus. <gasps> There's your Quincy connection and detection. Did, your detection connection, connection. <laughs> with Jack Klugman. <laughs> So it wasn't goodbye Colombo. No. Which no. Colombo goes to the Col- capital of Sri Lanka <laughs> and then leaves. Yeah, perhaps they thought that wasn't the best opening for Good- us. The new crime detective. Goodbye Colombo. Colombo. Goodbye Colombo. Colombo's goodbye to Colombo. Colombo, goodbye Colombo. I don't know that what combination of commas would make that work at all. I think some colons or semicolons. Somewhere in there, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Colombo. Goodbye, Colombo. <laughs> the motion picture. The most complicated title. Mm. Yeah, absolutely tanked at the box office because <laughs> no people write were so it down. Conf- confused. All the sign, all the people who have to put the signs up outside the, the uh, movie theaters just couldn't, didn't have enough punctuation. Yeah, Philip Roth oh, definitely, definitely yeah. taken his name off the project somewhere in the early <laughs> stages of development there. Anyway, some British films. Uh, it's a great period for British films that I like that are sort of rubbish, but uh, of lots of uh, good connections to things like The Magic Christian. Oh, reckon The what? Magic Christian. The Terry Southern? Yeah, so it's based on a Terry Southern story, and it's Peter Sellers and Ringo, Ringo. Starr. Ooh, I never heard of that. It's it's very very bonkers. It is. Uh, the bed sitting room, which is oh, an yeah. absolutely phenomenal it's film. Terrific. There uh, was a film called Can Hieronymus Merkin Ever Forget Mercy Hump and Find True Happiness? Yeah, my sister used to have the, uh, she probably still does actually, the soundtrack album. All oh, right. Is um, it a jazzy little number? From what I recall, no, right. <laughs> don't know anything about that film. Just like the ex- yeah. extremely stupid title. Uh, the Italian Job. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, yeah. Which is a, a strange Bond film that's often discussed, but uh, it's got lots to recommend it. It's a corker. Yeah. There's a lot of dubbing in that. It's a bit weird yeah, to watch. Yeah, it's got some strange production decisions. But, but it's, then, it's got George Baker in it, and then George Baker in an acting role, and then he dubs Lazenby's Bond. George Lazenby pretending to be his character... Yeah, it's, it, it's it, absolutely balmy when you think strange. about it. Anyway. But it does have Diana Rigg and Louis Armstrong doing the, um, the, the yeah. song, so... Yeah. yeah, Diana Rigg. Looking like a very lovely person. So, let's move on to the uh, 
Hammer film from this year. Oh, um, only one, and it's a horror one, classic horror. Only one. Ninety. Uh, what a uh, what one a part of this a series or a standalone? I think it's part of the series. Would it be time for Taste the Blood of Dracula? It would not. Ooh. That might be 1970, that maybe. Might be coming up future months. I'm not sure. It's Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. Ah, right. yeah. Ooh, I'd have been guessing for a while on that. Yeah. I've, I've definitely seen it, but I can't remember it. I, I, yeah. I lose track of which one is which, if I'm they perfectly all, honest. Yeah, <laughs> they all do somewhat merge into one. Yeah, especially the Frankenstein ones, which are essentially the same story told yeah, almost in exactly the yeah. same way. Every you see, time. what you were saying there, there was only one then, you see. I think in the early 70s, they were absolutely churning them out like yeah. a dozen mm. a year kind of thing. And this they? is not even counting the sort of non-horror ones or the different yeah. types of film. Yeah, I think they, they got really into their stride. Let's go. Let's get Carry On out of the way. Okay. okay. People people think we actually like Carry On films, whereas they're absolute garbage in my view. Well, I, I don't know that they're all absolute garbage, but certainly a good swathe of them are Carry on. less than brilliant. Can we have a clue then? Because otherwise well, we'll be guessing for here we, weeks. Well, there's actually two of them. One's a sequel to another one, or not a sequel, uh, uh, again, another one in the style of, and hmm. one is one of the most famous ones. Carry On... Are we up to losing your head? No, nope. it was called. Are we up to camping yet? Carry on, camping. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. You've said it every time. Yeah. You, you always get those. Carry on camping, which famously Barbara Windsor's bra flies off. Oh, hila- oh. hilarious! And some men are in a tent. Sued. <clears throat> and the other one is Carry On Again, Doctor. Oh, I would never definitely run out of ideas by yeah. this stage. But Carry On Camping was the highest rate grossing British film of that year. Yeah. Higher than the Italian job, <laughs> higher than, you know, on a Majesty's Secret Service. But you know, just Blimey. goes to show people were clearly in need for some loose boobs. Well, <laughs> barely glimpsed loose boobs. In terms of TV things, anyway, I'll do a quick rundown of this. In America, Sesame Street makes its debut. Ooh. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. <laughs> there you are, that was four years old. What's that? That was just a song from Sesame Street. All oh, right. What's that? I thought that's not the theme tune. I just remember that particularly as being one of the cartoon counties. Was that the count? Did he, was he, well, he didn't do that song. Was he, was he there from the beginning, though? I haven't got that information. Mm. I'm sorry. I want to know. He's me, he was always my favourite. And then that giant woolly mammoth with the huge uh, eyelashes. Mr. Snuffleupagus. Yeah, that's, that's him, yeah. I think I saw something by pure chance today, you now you mentioned this. That <laughs> I, don't, I don't see down, giant... Down the Asda. Beautifully... In the bread aisle. Manicured eyelashes. <laughs> Snuffling some buns. I believe his first name is Aloysius. <laughs> Aloysius Snuffleupagus, I believe, is his first name. Prove me wrong. I'd, lo- I'd love to meet him. Be great. He was always looked very much like he'd be nice to cuddle. Mm. Yeah, true. A couple of TV programmes, Marcus Welby, MD, and Medical Centre. So clearly in America they were getting into their medical dramas at that point. Marcus Welby Medical Centre? No, Marcus Welby, MD, and one called Medical Centre. Oh, right. What did they say? (laughs) Marcus Welby Medical Centre. Let's just do some UK bits, otherwise we'll be here forever. Uh, Last appearance of Patrick Troughton as the second Doctor Who in 1969. The Randall and Hopkirk deceased oh, starts. Yeah. yeah, it's good that I like that. 
I don't know whether that made it over to America or whether anyone knows about that, but it's worth looking up as a particular example of a a time period in British TV where telefantasy was trying to be sort of all gritty and realistic, like a, a like a Bond or something like that, yeah. but also well, a bit was a bit lighthearted well. and supernatural. Hmm. Yeah, Danny the- Spooner was it. Possibly, might have been. I think it was. Famously, uh, Lulu the Elephant uh, did a crap on Blue Peter. Marvellous. Which we've been condemned to watch for eternity on bloopers and uh, clip shows. First episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus starts... Mm, yeah. Well, first episode, several episodes that year. Mm-hmm. And we finally get to regular colour television in the UK on BBC One and ITV. Talking about bloopers, uh, what was Dennis Norton doing in 1969? Probably writing sitcoms, I would have thought, with Frank Muir. Got another great idea, Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Ephemera. Now, can any one of us think of anything quite big and interesting that happened in 1969? Big and interesting. The... uh, on about infrastructure here. I'm just uh, just in general in sort of like the entire history of the planet. I mean the moon landing. Yeah, the moon landing. Yeah. All yeah. oh, right. It was the one I was thinking of. I was thinking of that the Humber Bridge or something. <laughs> even, even bigger than the Humber Bridge, you mean? If such a thing were possible. I was talking to my mum about the moon landing when I was down at, at home the other weekend or last weekend in fact, and she was saying that she remembers it was on TV. I think she was in the army at the time. And it was on TV in, in some room somewhere, and she was watching it, and someone came in, one of her colleagues or whatever, and said, said, oh, what are you watching? And mum said, the moon landing. And this person said, oh, haven't we been to the moon? Mm. So, Excellent. Okay, yeah. Are you in military intelligence, perhaps? I don't know. <laughs> I've seen you something that yeah. your mum and the Dark side of the didn't. moon. A few other things. Nixon becomes president. Mm-hmm. Starts taking troops out of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. That's, so there's a, quite a lot of uh, significant political stuff coming up in the next couple of years. And boy, there's loads of murderers around in the late 60s. Ooh. I mean, like in the UK, the Cray twins have been arrested and found guilty for doing people in. The Zodiac Killer starts. Ooh. There's all the stuff with the Manson Ooh. family. Yeah. Yeah. The Zodiac Killer's uh, very interesting. Mm, yeah. a good film about that as well. There is. And the first ATM cash machine in the United States is installed in New York. Mm. Now, I thought this was quite an interesting fact because one... They already existed in the UK, did they not? Well, that, exactly that. The first one in, in the UK was years before that. Yeah. And do you know who opened it? who was famously the first user of the cash machine in, oh, uh, oh. in Enfield in London. Oh, it's somebody ridiculous, like Cliff Richard or somebody, isn't it? It's even more ridiculous yeah, than that. Yeah, oh, no. uh, Ken Dodd or somebody. No. Who? Reg Varney from... Yeah, <laughs> I knew it was somebody really silly. There was a TV series and a couple of films called On the Buses, which are prime examples of the worst type of... Oh, I don't even know how to describe them, sort of... Supposed comedies that basically like carry on with all the class taken out of it, <laughs> which is yeah. saying something. Sub carry on is definitely about right. It's, and, yeah, c- combines a couple of things we always talk about because obviously Hammer made the films as well, didn't they? They did uh, Hammer's most successful film <laughs> of the time. Anyway, so he was the first user of the a Red cash Varney, machine. The lead actor in that was the first user of a cash machine. Amazing. <laughs> I wonder how much money he got out. Yeah. Maybe queue students all getting <laughs> half a crown out of a cash machine. I wonder if they spit coins out in that now. Must have been like 
bloody hell, we've been going on for ages. We haven't even mentioned. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we just rattle through the book in a few minutes, <laughs> can't we? Right, let's let's just uh, round up this stuff here. The Concorde takes flight for the first time. Oh, yeah. Beatles do their last live session mm-hmm. on the roof of uh, the Apple Building. Yeah. The last trains on the Waverley Line run Oof. between Edinburgh and Carlisle, which is now partially reopened. And uh, Manchester City beat Leicester City 1-0 in the FA Cup. Oh. oh, and for our listeners in Australia, Carlton became the first team to score 200 points in a Victorian Football League match of Australian rules football. I don't know what any of that means. But that's for you, our Australian friends. There we go. Flipping it, let's get on to this book. Well, I'm going to rate it. Uh... <laughs> anyway, as I mentioned, perhaps too briefly earlier, this came out in 1969. One of the interesting things about Shotgun by McBain is it actually it was released in Canada first the year before. So as it got towards the end of 1968, there was a version of this book published in what they called a Star Weekly novel, which I think is in the Toronto Star Weekly newspaper, and they used to publish novelizations. If you do research into this, you find a couple of copyright dates, one of which relates to the Canadian release mm-hmm. of it as this supplemental thing. And I'll show you the cover of that later. And the 1969 date, which is the actual book. It's the published in double by Doubleday in hardback, later in Signet in paperback, and in the UK it's still Hamish Hamilton and then Pan. So that's the info. About this time... Evan Hunter's still putting out a lot of books under his own name, so he's just puts out one called Sons as well that year. He did a stage play called The Conjurer, which I can find no information mm-hmm. out about. Conjurer. And he also... And Jeffrey Durham. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not even going to go down that avenue. <laughs> but there was one adaptation of this book, and that was in not until 1992 in uh, Czechoslovakia. Are we still Czechoslovakia in 92? Um, or are we in the Czech Republic then? Uh, Czechoslovakia, maybe. It was quite soon, though, wasn't it? After? It's, it's almost yeah. on the turning point now, isn't it, I think? Apologies to I any mean, of our mate. Yeah, Czech be, or Slovak friends. By then, yeah. But it was called Brokovnice. I think that's pronounced, I'm pronouncing that right. And it's an hour-long adaptation of it. Which I showed you guys a little little clip before we started. Look quite good apart from the annoying music. It's got weird, like cheap private eye music all the way through. <laughs> like lift music, just constantly. Yes, it's, it's slightly tense lift music. Yeah, like Raymond Chandler's lift to floor five. <laughs> the Raymond Chandler lift. Yeah. But it's weird because it's clearly supposed to be set in America, mm. but they're not speaking American. They're speaking Czech. Maybe they're speaking Czech with an American accent. Would we know? We, uh, yeah. Well, we wouldn't. Somebody find me a Czech person so we can check. <laughs> Sorry. God, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, then. Initial thoughts on this one, then. Is it just continuing the theme of sort of solid stories? Is It, it seems to be a little bit back to basics, maybe, in terms of straightforward, what on earth's gone on, let's find who done it. A little bit, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I less think... Less on the experimentation, maybe. I think sometimes, possibly after a Deaf Man novel, there's m- maybe a bit of a feeling of, let's just restate kind of some of the, the basics of, of the series. Possibly, yeah, it's not, it's not always going to be mad super criminals. Mm. It's, it's the day-to-day 
horrors of yeah. a shooting or a stabbing, mm. both yeah. in this case, in this book. Yes, yeah, so it's so, very graphic yeah. crime, which is quite violent, and there's a lot of people chuntering on in this book about not being safe on the streets and this and that, so that's a, a little bit of a theme that goes on. I think you can definitely tell in this book, and I think in Fuzz as well, that the prevailing mood of, of being in the city is changing a bit. Mm. There's, a, there's a more tension coming up, particularly when they encounter characters who are black. It, it's, it seems more and more a thing that they're talking about the situation and tensions between black and white people in the city, which I think is reflective of what was happening in New York at the time as they move in at the 70s yeah. where it gets pretty bad. Yeah, because there was a big spike in violent crime, wasn't there, in the States in the 70s? Yeah, especially in uh, cities. So yeah. that's kind of... That's um, definitely creeping uh, uh, in. Uh, yeah, definitely a theme, really, I would say, yeah. Um, but as the crime goes, it's a fairly graphic and gruesome one, and it starts with somebody throwing up as a result well, I think of this the, is, the gruesomeness. It's a brilliant first line to a book. It's a bit like a Richard Stark line. Though. Yeah, yeah. Detective like Bert Kling went outside to throw up. <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of like, Because <laughs> even if you never didn't know the characters... To have that opening line, if you pick this up as your first 87th <laughs> Precinct book and you read that, you don't need to know that about Berkling being a young cop or anything. It's just the idea, you know you're in for something that's going to be pretty gruesome <laughs> right from page one. Mm. And, uh, yeah, two people have had their heads blown off. With a proper shotgun. like So it, it's the book's called Shotgun, the weapon is a shotgun. Yep. Yeah, it's fairly... But really, we, fairly straightforward. We meet straight away our old favourites, Monaghan and Munro, the homicide cops, who always seem really straight. The more violent the crime, the weirder it seems that they're there because they have such a sort of blasé attitude to everything because being homicide cops, they've seen everything. Yeah, have they, have they been in it for a while? I can't... Uh, I don't think they have for, no. a, for a couple of them. We haven't no. seen them for a little bit, have we? But uh... I, could, I could check, but I'm not going to. No. <laughs> um... Graf Conklin, the fact-checking ghost here, being quite quiet in case of that ghost mouse coming out here. I just wanted to let you know that the last time we saw Monaghan and Monroe was in book 18, Axe, in 1964. But don't worry, they turn up lots in the coming stories. I'm Graf Conklin. From where is my accent today? Nobody knows. And then there's just a lot of... Um... A lot of footwork ensues after that, really. There's no political angle in this, which we've had recently, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, Fuzz, as I ones. said, was, yeah. was very full of sort of or, talking about the city structure. Or there's no grand scheme that you're aware of, or you don't get anything from the um, the perp's perspective in this whatsoever, do you? Mm. No, although it does tie back into the ultimate example of that at one point well it does later we on but uh, yeah in terms of because you get that in a fair amount of McBain's I would say in the series mm. but this has virtually none of it in terms of what the perp's thinking or doing or yeah so it, it is a total mystery as to what's gone on yeah we move straight Until into very near the end really yeah we if we move straight out of the first chapter which is purely discovering the body or going to the scene of the crime and talking to the person who found the body. In chapter two, straight away, we meet a newly promoted detective who's going to be with us for a oh. long time, oh, yeah. which is uh, former patrolman Richard Gennaro. Hey. Or Dick Gennaro makes his, his debut as a detective in here, really? already winding someone else up. <laughs> that's all he does, doesn't he? He just does that and then Yeah, that's his only, yeah, his only appearance in here. It's just he's, McBain's put him in to just... 
prove that the events of Fuzz have uh, somehow led to his promotion to, to detective. Yeah, I'm still not clear on how that really happens. <laughs> I think it's the being injured in the line of duty yeah. And, yeah. and all that sort of Sympathy stuff. Sympathy promotion. Yeah, which perhaps backfires a little bit for the squad because he's not particularly brilliant from that point <laughs> onwards. No. But he's there. Um, and then there's a sequence in, in a morgue with identifying the bodies. And our, our friend Stella suggested that right off she says right off the bat there's a reference to a sleaze novel in the mortuary that seems like it could be an easter egg perhaps a reference to a dean hudson book and because almost every time you go to a mortuary the mortuary attendant is doing something horrible like reading a porn mm. magazine or a, or a dirty <laughs> book i mean there's no way of knowing from the description in this if it is a dean hudson book because mm. i've never read any of the dean hudson books and they're quite hard to research being quite hard to come by and pretty porny in there <laughs> so i can't confirm what it was but it wouldn't surprise me if it's not McBain sort of knowing that world and, and knowing that people were picking up cheap, pulpy, soft porn or S&M bondage paperbacks and reading them. So I think that's probably a fair shout. And she identifies the body anyway. The mother of, of, of one of the victims identifies the body because it's got a tattoo mm-hmm. on his arm with his name written on it, which seems fair enough. It does. Well, I didn't think anything of it. It was one of those, having read it before, I couldn't really remember. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, it's one of those, yeah. Well, let's jump straight into chapter three then. And there's some nice description of the weather. So there's a big tick in the McBain box. I like the line that Corella was wearing a tan trench coat and feeling like a private eye. (laughs) Because he never acts like a private eye, except for the fact that he does seem to occasionally go back to scenes of crimes on his own when he should be Mm. with a partner. Which he does in this again. Like yeah. a pillock. He always gets coshed over the head when he does as well. You'd think he'd have got onto that, but maybe the amount of coshings over the head have made him forget yeah. that that always happens. It's McBain does delight in torturing Corella. It's with twenty three books in, and he's been beaten up or injured or shot more than anyone else in the. He's the most, and they call Bob O'Brien an unlucky cop, but you, Corella is just basically. I'd worry about his condition of his brain. <laughs> Anyway, I'm sure we'll come to that. I do like this bit, anyway, because they have to go and visit the employer of the guy who, who they think's been killed. And the, he's one of the McBain characters. He's convinced that every woman in his office is a nymphomaniac. Yeah. Whereas one of them appears to be, because she hits on Kling mm. straight away, but it's like everyone, like the most sort of dowdy yep. file clerk, yeah. everyone. Yeah, she's some woman who shuffles in. Yeah. And as she leaves, he's just like, nymphomaniac. Just a man obsessed with the idea. Hmm. Yeah, I do like those sorts of characters. Yep. Hey, another example of, and I don't know if your book will do this, Morgan, but they talk about checkbooks, about this guy coming to get a new checkbook. Mm-hmm. And of course, the American spelling of checkbook is C-H-E-C-K, yeah. whereas ours is C-H-E-Q-U-E, because we like to be florid. <laughs> and in, in our editions, they've got it spelt the British way. Yeah. I assume mine... Isn't Morgan's got a signet edition, gone. which we'll talk more about in the bonus episode. But yeah, rampage thirty-three. So this is a bit like arse and ass from from go. last time. Please call and ask her to send fresh checkbook. C H E C G. Is that mm. in the text or in the? Ah, just on the. Just what about underneath the image? Reader? We're doing some important referencing. Uh, important referencing, yeah. No, they're not the checks. Yeah, C H E C K. Yeah, that's oh, very, just, very American. It just it beggars belief that we that they think readers wouldn't understand that check and check 
Well, I, I, obviously, I was completely flummoxed by and this. Check uh, C Z E C H. Yeah, as a, a, an English reader, I, I hadn't a clue what they were talking about, so I'm glad you've cleared it up because otherwise, I would have been totally yeah, lost. I've totally changed the book for you. <laughs> yeah, like what's he checking? I don't understand. <laughs> But there is a good bit of McBaining here, which has, funnily enough, popped up recently on Twitter. There's an author you may have heard of called uh, Stephen King, mm-hmm. and he was recently rereading Shotgun. I assume in anticipation of listening to <laughs> our podcast. Hi, Stephen. Nice to have you. <laughs> um, but funnily enough, he, he posted a picture of the the page where McBain lists the rules about what you can get what can happen to be denied a shotgun permit in in the city, so ostensibly in New York in 1969. And he basically said, gun laws in New York City circa 1969 applying to rifles and shotguns. Curious to know how much they have changed. Well, I'm assuming you just missed our, you know, our podcast handle off that, Stephen. You did mean to ask us. So (laughs) let's have a little look. I did find out. I went and found out what the current situation is in the New York law. Because obviously in America, we, they have different sort of jurisdictions of where the laws apply citywide, statewide, you know, and then across the country. So I looked it up, and if you can find the lists to compare with me, gentlemen, which about page 37 in my book, I think. Mm-hmm. He lists six things and a couple of addendums of reasons yeah. that you might not be allowed to have a shotgun. Yeah. So what was number one? Uh to be 18. Yeah, anyone of the age of 18. Yeah, so it still applies. The minimum age for obtaining a permit is 18 years of age. So that's the same. Right. Number two. Anyone who'd been convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor. Okay, so you could be denied a permit if you have been arrested, indicted or convicted for a crime or violation, except for minor traffic violations in any federal, state or local jurisdiction. Hmm. So in this case now, in the real world, now... If you've been arrested, not just if you've been convicted. Right, okay. So it's been tightened up. Hmm. And what's number three? Uh, Can be denied to anyone who had been confined to a hospital for mental illness, alcoholism or drug drug addiction unless now declared sound by a specialist in psychiatric medicine. That doesn't come out quite the same, but it does say here, and this covers basically three, four and five from the book, the applicant has or is reasonably believed to have a disability or condition that may affect the ability to safely possess or use a rifle or shotgun, including, but not limited to, alcoholism, drug use or mental illness. Hmm. So that covers that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because so, that covers number four as well, I uh, think. Yeah, the physical defect making it unsafe to handle a weapon. And five, which is five, which is basically kind of the same as three, to be honest. Um, anyone who's mental defective or habitual drunkard. Uh, and number six, uh, anyone who had been dishonourably discharged from the military service um, by reason of an action found constituting a felony or misdemeanour. So to conclude with those ones then, there is a specific one made. The applicant is or has been an unlawful user of or addicted to a controlled substance or marijuana. And the applicant has been other than honourably discharged from the armed forces of the country. So all of those things are taken into consideration still, mm. but there is a lot more as well now. So, for instance, nowadays you can be denied a permit if you've got um, a history of one or more incidents of domestic violence, which I think is probably a very, very important one in terms of how mm. these weapons end up used a lot of the time. Yeah. Things about temporary orders of protection, I don't really know what that is. 
False statements on applications seems fair enough. Yeah. The applicant has a poor driving history, has multiple driver license suspensions, and this is a good one, or has been declared a scofflaw by the New York Ooh. State Department of Motor Vehicles. <laughs> Take never, that, scofflaws. I'd never heard the word scofflaw before. <laughs> and I, I went to look it up and thought, I clearly know what this word means. It means exactly what it is. People who just take the mickey. They scoff at the law, yeah. <laughs> Sounds a good new word. It sounds like a very old word. It probably is. Uh, failure to comply with other laws about guns. Being terminated from employment under circumstances that demonstrate lack of good judgment or lack of good moral character. Oh, seems a bit harsh. I did it. If I got fired from my job, I'd, I'd still expect to be able to go out and buy a shotgun to go back to my job. And <laughs> yeah. Persuade them to... Uh... Persuade them to take me back on. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you've demonstrated an inability to safely store firearms, such as through a history of lost or stolen firearms... Fair enough. Yeah. So you started, you gun, it's the eighth what? time you've gone to buy a gun is because you keep leaving them on the metro or something. <laughs> one more. Yeah. One more shotgun, then that's your I'll limit. remember this one. <laughs> or if you've not... Um, Paid debts such as child support, taxes, fines, etc. So there's there's quite a lot more in there than mm. I, I mean I assume McBain was sort of praising the law of the time anyway to some extent. Guess but so. the, it goes beyond now, so mm. it's it does seem a bit stronger. What it should just say is you should not be allowed a shotgun. Yeah. And that would prevent shotgun crimes. Would tend to, yeah. Oh, what was that noise? That was interesting. Sorry, there was just a mysterious ghostly noise in my Ooh. house there. Was, yeah. I'm gonna assume it was. A mouse, or possibly a ghost, or possibly a ghost mouse. Mm, possibly. So keep your eyes out for ghost mice. Oh yeah, and you also have to now you have to provide four colour photographs taken within thirty days instead of just two colour photographs. Uh-huh. So there you go. So I hope that's answered your question, Mr. Stephen King. And please let us know if there's anything else we can help you with. And if you want to leave a review or, you know, share it or anything. Everybody pile on Stephen. Pile on Stephen. <laughs> right. So we can carry on now. <laughs> so basically, they find out who, who owned the gun anyway. They, they get tons of fingerprints, of which one set they can't identify. And they, but they manage to find the gun owner because they've got the gun. And I like the name that the uh, they give him, Walt, this Walter Damascus. Because yes, it sounds like a bit of a ridiculous name, and therefore, reading through the book, you're always a bit doubtful of whether this person exists or not, aren't you? Because they'd never find him. Well, well, yeah. Uh, you know, they're chasing around and he's... After they, Wally Damascus. They find his digs and he's not there, but there's a bit of a paper trail and he's been in this bar and being driven around with the, by this red-headed woman in a yellow car. and So he's a bit of a phantom, isn't he? Mm-hmm. But yeah. because he's got this daft name as well, you, you just think... Oh, it's got to be like a, a pseudonym, haven't it? But turns out it isn't. Yeah. But um, good name. Yeah. But by this point, we've got a, a B story coming in as well, haven't yeah. we? Yeah. Because Maya Maya, who's on a different shift pattern with cotton whores, is called out to a stabbing where a woman is just stabbed, like, and the knife left in her. About as clean a murder as you get in these books, really. And then he's got to figure out why. And it just turns out she's a beat poet. Thus giving McBain the opportunity to write a load of <laughs> false beat poetry. That guy that um, Maya Mayer uh, interviews uh, as well, he's really impressed with him, isn't he? Uh, on the street, you know, when the that lady's found dead. Yeah. Um, some guy who he reckons is 
Should be about forty years younger than he is, or something. <laughs> well, it's the yeah, it's the guy who's sort of come to to, to see her, found the body, I think, and it's he's, he's like a an aging beat hippie yeah. Yeah. type cat. He certainly is. He's uh, he's far out, Daddy O. All that stuff, which clearly was pervading the the streets of New York at the time that this was being written, and presumably this <laughs> is I. I don't think McBain's putting it in affectionately. I think he's taking the mickey as usual. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And enjoying the chance to write some of that far out beat poetry <laughs> that comes in. But it's a bit of a funny one because Maya Maya basically gets has to start follow this crime up and it just doesn't go anywhere, which yeah. is odd for a B story. Cause mm. Well, you can't find a motive, can they? Can't find a motive because no everyone likes the woman. They can't find that she's got a relationship that could have soured. All they've got is the fact that she was talking to this bloke in a bar late yeah. at night who was trying to f- f- find a name, wasn't wasn't he? Yeah, so a very well-meaning barman felt he needed to come forward when he found out she was dead and said she was talking to a guy, and that's all they know. Yeah, I'm wondering, because I can't check the original um, Canadian publication of this, I'm wondering if this was like the additionally slotted-in story for the, the book-length version of it, as he sometimes did, like... You know, Fuzz was published in a paper and things mm. like that, but I don't think they always had the, like the dual plot thing. Oh, so I can't go back. If anyone's got a copy of the Star Weekly version of this, is the Maya Maya knife crime murder in there? Is the mm. question I'd like to know the answer to. Yeah, because the other, half, the other, the main bit would survive without it, wouldn't it? I've done the thing again where I uh, read the book like several weeks before we do the podcast, so I'm forgetting things. I'm just going to keep leafing through and oh, finding some things to talk about. No. Uh, but uh, yeah, sorry, don't right. mind me. Well, there's there's a sequence in the in the Maya Maya story where he he goes to find the people that that knew uh, Marguerite Ryder, who was Margie Ryder, who was mm. killed. So he goes to a a poetry reading. Oh yeah, which is a great little slice of of well, it's ostensibly amazing. Greenwich Village, really. Now, I think here, in terms of tying into the real world again, Maya Maya and, and Cotton Hawes go to a poetry reading at a, a YMCA in the quarter in Isola. So I reckon that must be the equivalent of the McBurney YMCA in Greenwich Village slash Chelsea mm. in New York, which is the YMCA that inspired the song oh, YMCA by village people. So Never knew that. That's, that's my feeling that it must have been that rather than one of the famous cafes where a lot of these poetry readings happen he's specifically named a YMCA so that's my feeling seems very likely and I'm sticking to it and it's got a lovely line at the end of that though because they've had all these ludicrous beat poems happening in chapter 9 and at the end it says that uh, Cotton Hawes and Maya Maya step outside into the fresh November prose mm-hmm. which is a lovely way of getting them back to reality mm-hmm after all that stuff. Don't think they really learn anything at that trip, do they? No, they don't. They no. don't get any further along. The case goes cold. Meanwhile, though, Bert Kling's having a time of it. Oh, he is, Because yeah. mm-hmm. this woman at the place where one of the victims worked has tried to get her claws into him. Yeah, and she's, she's got a bit of an eye, isn't she, for yeah, old she's, Bert? She's pursuing him rel- relentlessly. All the while, he's also obviously with Cindy Forrest, who he's having a bit of a tough time with because she's talking about her dissertation she wants to do about the detective as voyeur. Mm. Yeah, it's a big analysis of the film Blow Up, isn't there? Yeah. It goes yeah. on for quite a while, actually, which is... I don't know whether Mac, um, Ed, Evan Hunter had a bit of a 
thing for blow up the film I don't know yeah it's interesting because I've not seen blow up in a long time I think yeah, I've seen it I, once I, maybe yeah it must be 20 years since I've seen it yeah but it's strange that it's uh, it's clearly stuck with him to he's want to write a whole chapter basically yeah, he does, he <laughs> discussing does, he goes, he goes blow up for a long long time yeah but Bert's not interested in that he's just, he just interested in yeah in uh, getting his end away. Yes, he definitely has other interests, yeah. it's fair to say. Therefore, it leads him to uh, questionable choices with regards interviewing the... Uh, and Gilroy. Yeah. Gilroy was here. Which he's telling himself he meets her for a drink for purely professional purposes. Purely professional purposes. But she's, yeah, she's yeah. basically... She's he doesn't read it. Barely dressed when... <laughs> <laughs> And that ends up leading to a big scene. A big scene on the big station set. Dave Merch having to sort it out. <laughs> yeah. Which is quite good. But it all ends all right, doesn't it? Well, you say it all ends all right, but the, after, after Berkling and Cindy Forrest have their big fight at the end when Cindy Forrest sees him with Anne Gilroy, yeah. she's oh. like, I love you so much, I was I, willing to kill you. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's worked out that well. Yeah. Well, a that, bit of a toxic relationship yeah, thing. Yeah, but that, that's in there for no other purpose than the seed of the motive of the crime in the book. Surely. Yeah, it's a reflection of... It's of like, oh my God, some people kill... Yeah. People because they love them so much. What relevance has that got <laughs> to this plot? Yeah, it's true. And then is it around about that time that a, a cold case comes back in? Which well, I'd totally forgotten came back in this, actually. And it was a very nice, well, a nice touch. Because you don't often get those in. I think this may be unique in, mm. in the series. So when we get to the actual date, is Halloween in the book, and he talks a lot about these bad. Halloween events, so suddenly the cases sort of fall fall to the side while he talks about the weird things people get up to in the name of Halloween, like schoolgirls pushing each other off roofs and stuff mm-hmm. like that, or whatever it is. But at that point, some drunk guy gets basically brought in because he's he's drunk and he's dancing around on a table talking about having killed someone. And they bring him into the squad room and he sort of says, "No, no, I was just drunk," and it turns out to be Roger Broom. Roger Broom from the. Yeah, you see who hesitates. He who oh, hesitates. yeah. Yeah, the the one that's as in wandering around the precinct hesitating to tell the police about killing somebody and putting them in a fridge and nicking yeah. the fridge and throwing it in the river. So he's back to the city to presumably sell his little wooden bowls again mm. as as he as he did every so often. Mm. But now he's got drunk and it's clearly playing playing on his mind that he killed someone. Broke their legs, shoving them in a fridge, and chucked them off. A... <laughs> as I suppose it would. Well, but, but as we so. know, as we know from that book, though, he is fairly mental. Isn't he? <laughs> I believe um, that's the technical medical term. It yeah. de- definitely is. Yeah, absolutely. But when yeah. they bring him in, he sort of at first he says, "No, I was just drunk, being silly," and then Cotton Hawes recognizes him, and he's <laughs> sort of like, "The jig is up." Yeah, it's weird. And then he just he just confesses. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, gets it to try and get it off his. Uh, Conscience. Yes, it's, 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 it's strange how he chooses to revisit that crime. Well, it's also interesting because he, he McBain says, what is it that makes someone want to confess? And he says, he references a guy called Theodore Reich, or Reich, I don't know how you pronounce it, who was one of Freud's first students. So psychoanalysis is clearly somewhere in his mind whilst he's writing this book, given everything with Cindy Forrest. Mm. So Theodore Reek was someone who became a naturalised US citizen who was a psychoanalyst of psychotherapeutic listening, masochism, criminology, literature and religion. Mm. 
So that's referenced in that section about Roger Broom. But basically, he wraps up a, a different book in that <laughs> with yeah. that event. Yeah, it's peculiar. We're gonna have to try and wrap this up because we're getting. Ooh, let me have a look at the time. My goodness, we could go into this in quite a lot of detail because I think there's this is actually story is seeded with a lot of clues. Hmm. I mean, they all are, but there's little things I picked up on when I was sort of re-reviewing it to to prep, prep me notes and things like stuff to do with the razors. Which, because there's things about why would the killer mm. use someone's electric razor yeah. after having shot them with a shotgun in the middle of the night, which would have made a ton of noise. Not that anyone else in the building cared <laughs> about that. Well, that's, the alarm bells were going when that... Uh... But yeah, so they have him using a razor, but there's a, a sly little reference early on to this guy having had a wet shave in his own apartment because there's tissue paper mm. with blood on it. And there's all sorts of little uh, sneaky things like that yeah, come in there. But we better talk about the ending, really. About the resolution of the Ooh, case. Right, okay. You know, and we're we giving the game away. Well, we? it's, <laughs> I think it's tough. We're going to have to give the game away well, to some you, extent. In hindsight, you're, you should always be suspicious when people are being shot with shotguns to obliterate their facial features, shouldn't one? Yes. And yes, the, the victim isn't who we thought it was. And as soon as you realise that, you know immediately who the killer is. Yeah, and they very conveniently, he falls into a pattern of trying to cash checks, mm. whichever way you want to spell it. Yeah, so they catch him in a bit of a mundane way, really, don't they? Yeah, the they end? do a stakeout, which works, pans out immediately. <laughs> yeah. And they catch this guy, who has the same tattoo as the body. Yeah, that's the most preposterous part, because I cannot believe for a second that the Forensics. forensic people wouldn't quickly work out that the tattoo would have been drawn on in a matter of seconds. That is the bit that gives death. me pause as well. It's, yeah, um... that's just totally unbelievable, frankly. Yeah, and there's the fact that they got loads of fingerprints at the crime scene, of which one set they can't identify they, they assume is the killers that they can't identify but they don't compare it to a set of fingerprints taken from the person who they think is the killer's house and therefore the, the, the fingerprinting in this which is important to make the story happen as in we don't know who the person is mm. it doesn't take much of a logic jump to have compared if they'd have compared things, they'd have figured out... Yeah. It's, frankly, it's some sloppy police work, isn't it? Some sloppy forensic well, work, certainly. Well, surely the, surely the fingerprints also of Mr. Layden, they would be over absolutely everything in the property to the point of... Yeah, it's... There's so many that it's as though he lived here. Yeah. Because it'd be all over... Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it, yeah, someone's not... Added up the obvious. In <laughs> when, when you start drilling into it, I don't think it it doesn't hold much water. No. I don't think. And I think you can sort of perhaps forgive the the fingerprint thing in terms of the characters in the book. It's just someone hasn't put mm. two and two together. Yeah. And as we know, for a lot of cases, a lot of cases in the real world are solved by someone just recognizing a pattern yeah. or someone somewhere yeah. going. But what about that and that? And a lot of them go unsolved for a long time when that doesn't happen. Indeed. But the tattoo thing, the pathologists alone would have been well, yeah. checking the body for everything, yeah. for powder burns, for all that sort of stuff, doing all the tests that they always do, but no one's actually rubbed the tattoo to find out it was put on there with felt tip or something. Well, he said he ages it by rubbing dust on it or something. Yeah. It doesn't make it more permanent on the skin, though, does no, it? No, it doesn't. I mean, so. I did, what, is it magic markers he says he uses? Yeah. Are those effectively permanent markers? Is that what we're... 
thinking like a like a, like a sharpie. Yeah, so I, I it wouldn't come right off with rubbing. I suppose it'd fade, so it'd look a little bit more well, like an actual tattoo. Presumably, by the time the bodies got to the morgue, they've washed these bodies. Once they've done all the forensics on them, I don't know. See, I don't, I, I don't know, but it. it, it I'm not does. suggesting someone soaked them up like, oh, you need to look nice. I know you've got no face, but you might have visitors later. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the procedure no. would be, but it does seem a little implausible. <laughs> right, so we're going to have to to um, sum up as well, yeah. and of course, the stabbing case is solved in a oh, and another thing, yeah, moment at the end. I stabbed a woman because I told her, yeah. 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 Enough that she would have joined the dots about. Yes, yeah, like, would have been able to say who it was. Rather than than any sort of police procedure. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll just. Yeah. But, I just did this but that is a curious bit of an add on plot because it doesn't really add anything to the main plot, and nor is it needed no, for it, its resolution. It, or... it, it, it gives you an excuse for a bit more fun character stuff and a bit more yeah. entertaining kind of colour, doesn't it? But. But what would have been the interesting, more interesting to do would have been, been, you know, they were found him because of that crime, and yet he only committed that crime to make sure he wasn't detected for the other crime. I totally agree, yeah. Well, then let's factor that into our summing up. So, Kenneth is available in large form here. Well, yeah. Large, so, Steve-O to, large to form, review. Large form, Kenneth. Right, okay. Am I going first? Well, you can go first, but do you want to just read out the, perhaps the scores for the last two or three books? All right. the well, a bit, they've been um, up and down a bit. We've had some very highs and very lows. So, Fuzz and then the uh, one before the one before that have both been plus 80s, but then we had a sub 60 for 80, 80 million eyes. We didn't particularly like that. Yeah. Uh, and then prior to that, bounce, bouncing <clears throat> around the 70. Police shields, Mark. So, yeah, there's a yeah. I'd like to do some statistical analysis with this, but feel free. Um, <laughs> so anyhow, yeah, I, yeah, I did enjoy it in terms of who'd done it, and I couldn't really remember. But the more I've kind of thought about the plot, the more <laughs> it's a little daft. I did like the return of Roger Broom. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, um, but uh, maybe. On balance, I think I might go something around the 68 police shields. Ooh, I think I'll 68. go something around that, that mark, I think. Okay, I, I throw over to Morgan Brown. Okay, I mean, I, I also I did really in, enjoy the book. The, the enjoyment came less from the actual crime plot, which you'd think is the main thing, and more from sort of all the, the colour and the detail and and everything else. I mean, you, the, the magic of these books is you can enjoy them even if you're really not sold on the kind of central crime that's holding them together. So I did still really enjoy it, but it's not one of the strongest kind of actual um, plots or subplots, really. Yeah. Um, I, just because I know there are so many other good ones which I'm going to want to rank higher, mm. I think I'm going to go in at around the 60 police shields at Mark. 60 police shields, okay. Well... I too was affected by thinking about it afterwards and the thing with the tattoo and and it felt very quick to end through mm. a pile mm. on of either coincidences or things that they should have picked up earlier but I re- I do like it as a you know it is one I think you could give to someone and say read this oh yeah and and you 
whiz through it in, in an afternoon yeah, and it, come away having enjoyed it. Yeah, that that's it. You'd 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 enjoy every second of reading it. Afterwards, you might not be totally kind of convinced about the veracity of the police procedure, but you'd... indeed. So. Yeah, I, I love all the, the McBain touches. I do like the that Roger Broom comes back into it, so it rewards the series reader. That's quite nice to mm-hmm. have that little True. weird throwback in there. It misses out a few things. It doesn't really have any uh, of the tropes of describing the cops again or explaining how Maya got his name or oh, talking about Cotton Hall's like hair or any of that stuff. That's fairly absent in this. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right, mm. yeah. But it does some interesting stuff in moving on some of the relationships of characters. Uh, I don't know. I'm. I like it. I like it. But I'm going to go for fifty-eight police shields. Ooh. Ooh. Bit like Paul Daniels. I like it, but not <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so that gives it a score of sixty-two police shields. Oh no rounding required at this point. That might be the lowest yet. No, I don't think. No, so, No, no. Eighty million eyes was below that. Oh right. I, I, I think in the end of it, this will end funny up fairly lot, solid in the middle. The funny, they're up and down at the moment. They are, There's yeah. a really good one and then one that we don't quite so rate. I mean... Interesting. 62 Shields, it's still really solid, isn't oh, it? it? That's, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, compared to a lesser writer, that, that uh, for a lesser writer, that would be, you know... That would be a, a good, good Yeah. Career best. Yeah. <laughs> so, 62 Police Shields for Shotgun from 1969... When we return for the next book... What are we doing next? Jigsaw, which is one of the ones made into an episode of Columbo. Hey. That everyone hates. (laughs) (laughs) Hey. (laughs) So we'll see if we can't do something Columbo-based for that as well. Tremendous. But if you join us on our bonus episode, what we're going to look at there is our usual thing of the book covers and the original releases, but also we're going to start discussing the... When would we set a TV series of the 87th Precinct? And I've got some nice feedback from some of you for that as well. So join us for that in a bit. Sorry, Steve, you made an interesting noise. I was just going to say, in the future. In the future. (laughs) 87th Precinct (laughs) 2052. Like it. So I'm going to say goodbye for now, and I'll let these gentlemen say goodbye as well. Goodbye as well. Fairly well. (laughs) 